The following episode is brought to you by the Shimizu Megacity Pyramid. The Shimizu TRY2004 Megacity Pyramid is a proposed Shimizu Corporation project for the construction of a massive self-sustaining arcology pyramid over Tokyo Bay in Japan that would have businesses, parks, and other services contained within the building and house 1 million people. The structure would be 2,004 meters or 6,500 feet high, including five stacked trusses, each with similar dimensions to that of the Great Pyramid of Giza. The idea for the pyramid began in 1982 when one of the Shimizu Corporation employees went to see the movie Blade Runner, prominently featuring two large pyramids in that movie's futuristic landscapes. The proposed structure is so large that it could not be built with current conventional materials due to their weight. The design relies on the future availability of super-strong lightweight materials based on carbon nanotubes and graphene that are presently being researched. The plan initially was to start construction in 2030, but no further action has been taken. Shimizu is still determined to complete the project by 2110. If built, it would become the largest man-made structure in world history. If you'd like to join the Shimizu Megacity Pyramid in supporting our podcast, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash rabbitholepodcast. Hello, rabbits. Welcome again to Rabbit Hole, our podcast of explorations of the rabbit holes that you go down when you start diving into intellectual subcultures in internecine fights, or is it intranecine? I don't know. Internecine, intranecine fights among the left. We've done Is School Good? We've done Is MMT Real? Right now, we're deep into the rabbit hole of Is Effective Altruism Right? And we are joined by my co-host, first of this series, uh, Dan Thorne. Hello, Dan. Hi, everybody. Hey, Pete. And we are joined by a wonderful guest today. We've had a few EA sympathizers, and now we have an EA critic here. I don't know if I want to fully characterize you as an EA critic, but you've written some EA critical things you can characterize yourself. Jonathan Ben Menachem. He is a PhD student in sociology at Columbia University, where he researches the politics of criminalization. I've invited him on the show because I'm a big fan of his Twitter presence. And I saw that you started tweeting about EA and started writing about it. And I was like, oh, we got to get him on. We got to get him down the rabbit hole. So uh, welcome, Jonathan. So glad to have you on Rabbit Hole. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great. So why don't we kick this off by just saying, you know, how did you first encounter effective altruism? What were your initial thoughts about it? And kind of a little bit about your background. I think the fact that you're a sociology uh, student would-be sociologist, it probably affects the way you look at it too. So maybe kind of give us give us the story of your first encounter. Yeah, so I'll say uh, to listeners that this is not my research area, right? I'm writing this out of a sort of personal interest and like I, I ran into it earlier in my life and now I'm rediscovering it because of my research experience. I mostly look at politics of criminalization. I'm working on a project about crime journalism. I have this paper about how traffic stops affect voter turnout. So again, that's like my distinct research area. But I first ran into effective altruism because I did my undergrad at NYU. I majored in philosophy and 
Peter Unger taught a class on ethics and he's one of the, alongside Peter Singer, one of the early effective altruists in the analytic philosophy tradition. To set the stage a little bit, I'm like 20 years old, it's 2014. This is before the first Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. I'm basically a rich kid. I go to NYU, like everyone at NYU is a rich kid, basically. So I, you know, I get to class and most of these classes involve just like reading health statistics about child mortality in the global South, right? Which is a very, it's, it's a very valid observation that should be motivating, right? Like it's bad that global poverty is so dire, right? But I don't think that the word capitalism was mentioned in the class once. It's not, there's not like a structural analysis of the historical phenomena that led global poverty to be produced. It's a problem with a, then a solution, right? And that's where the ethics aspect comes in. And at that point, I think I'd only encountered like Marxism in a Russian literature class. So it's not like I had some better framework to address this in because I was studying philosophy and literature. I was just, you know, coming into class and thinking, wow, that does seem bad. And maybe I should do something about it. So this gets into an interesting thing, and we'll get into kind of your future thoughts on it. But one of the interesting things about EA is that it's very, um, you know, on the surface, everything is just my vulgar understanding of it. So if anyone wants to say, send me no true EA emails, feel free to do so. But I, I, um, I, I've admitted to it. You know, it's, it's this idea, and it, some might call it kind of a neoliberal way of approaching public problems, which is modularized public problems and clever public solutions that you can analyze on a modular basis to address the public problems and compare them and then kind of decide what's the most efficient without ever looking deeper into structure. Um, is that is that uh, one reading you've seen? And, you know, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I would say that there's a there's a part that's comparable to neoliberalism, which is the emphasis on cost effectiveness. There's actually in sociology, not my subfield, but there's a great subfield that literally studies economists, like the sociology of uh, economics as a discipline, because economics is comparatively more powerful, and sociologists love studying things that are more powerful than them, right? So Elizabeth Pop Berman has great analysis on cost effectiveness as sort of the US governing ideology, right? But I, I would draw a distinction in that, like, I do think to affect like EA's credit, it's not just about cost effectiveness, but also we should be giving a lot more money, right? So neoliberalism would have like the public sector work with the private sector, so to speak, to manage social problems in a domestic context. And I agree with you about compartmentalizing, but EA does still, you know, expand it and say, we need to be doing more, you know, as private individuals. And we'll, I do want to come back to the idea of private individuals, which is not, you know, unproblematic. Okay, so let's keep moving through the biography. You know, what so yeah. you take this class, what do you originally think? Are you excited about it? So like one of the big EA charities evaluated by GiveWell, and we'll come back to GiveWell, is Against Malaria. I've donated a bunch of money to Against Malaria, in part because I think like GiveWell starts from a legitimate observation, which is that these giant NGOs that claim to solve global poverty or ameliorate it actually do set a lot of money on fire. So I was convinced to some extent, like, oh, like, this is a, a good way if I'm going to make charitable donations, and, you know, I have money that I can give against malaria as a place that I could put it. So like, it, it actually is sunset now, but the Amazon Smile program, like I had my Amazon Smile donations go to against malaria, right? So I guess the next step in the biography is, you know, next year, Bernie Sanders starts his campaign for president, right? Bernie Sanders, an ineffective altruist. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And I, I was at that point, like I had a music blog and I was in a band. So I organized like a benefit concert for Bernie and like tried to turn out voters, register voters, you know, and I just developed, of course, like if you want to, it's kind of a tangent, but the, the joke about Bernie Sanders too, is that he doesn't really have much of an international analysis of global poverty. It's a very nationalist America focused democratic socialism, right? So problems aside, I will emphasize that there was a collective action element of the Bernie campaign, which like brought me into a movement of people in society trying to create political change in response to poverty and explicitly addressing like capitalism and big business, right? Like these structural forces in society that can be addressed through struggle. Yeah, so this, first off, let me just issue a correction. What I meant by Bernie Sanders' ineffective ultras, I just meant he's not optimizing through Bayesian priors. Not that, (laughs) that was not a judgment call on the actual capital, the the lowercase e effectiveness of him. Um, I just meant an unoptimized (laughs) altruist. Um, But Not a spreadsheet altruist. Yes, (laughs) an organic altruist um, (laughs) and uh, uh, unquantifiable qualitative altruist. But, you know, you've also identified this interesting thing you know, throwing this benefit concert is collective, whereas working to give or donating is often aimed at an individual. Right. And I'll come back to this concept throughout our conversation. I think that's that's the core of what I'm annoyed about, basically. <laughs> we can fast forward a few years in my life, right, where skipping why I've entered sociology will say I'm taking methods classes, right, and I'm just seeing randomized controlled trials, which I'll call RCTs for the rest of the conversation, RCTs sort of loom large. And I'm like, man, what is with this stuff? Like, why are, why is there this cult of RCTs? And as I learned more about that, I learned about its connection to effective altruism, which is to me why I came back to it before all of the sort of crypto collapse stuff. I was already sort of coming around to another critique of effective altruism. Should we get into RCTs? You know, what is, you know, so for listeners who don't know, randomized control trial is kind of what they do for drugs, for example, for for pharmaceuticals. Um, It's kind of a very, very meticulous way of isolating one variable and seeing what the cause, you know, the effect of that one variable is. It's also different than how a lot of social science data comes, which is retrospective. You know, usually we just kind of look at correlations and see if things changed on their own beforehand and afterwards. This is actually trying to like run the science experiment out in the world, have a hypothesis, have, you know, a plan beforehand and then see how the data comes in. What is this, you know, on its face, this seems like a very wonderful thing to isolate a variable. You seem to have, why won't you be interested in this as a sociologist? You know, what is your critique of RCTs or skepticism? Yeah, so what's interesting about it, well, I wanted to add what you're talking about is called manipulation in the causal inference framework, which means like the person running the experiment literally assigned what is called the treatment to different groups randomly, right? So instead of, you know, saying like we've set up our, our analysis of existing data so that it's effectively random, which is a kind of analysis that I, I have published, right? RCTs are different in that there is genuine manipulation, right? And that that's good from a lot of in the causal inference framework. But what's interesting about it is it's a sort of historical phenomenon, right? Like RCTs, they were not always presented as what is called the gold standard of causal inference. I think what I'm pushing back on is not the merit of using RCTs, but the idea that RCTs are the best 
and then everything else looks towards RCTs as the model of the way we should do social science, right? They are the most effective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the cleanest. And you've mentioned in your article, which uh, on your Substack, which you know, I, I really enjoyed reading, that am I right in inferring or paraphrasing that your critique of RCTs is you know, that, one, there are big picture changes that might change a lot of things at once, you know, like, for instance, some of these big uh, social programs that we folks on the American political left you know, champion and cheer for, like a Green New Deal or something, where, you know, because it's harder to measure all of the effects of that happening because it'll change a lot of things at once, it's maybe scarier for uh, or more challenging for people to sort of quantize it and see the effects of it and measure it in a way that's, you know, legible in terms of data. And so are you saying that sociologists and other social scientists maybe prefer to look at interventions where you can kind of more effectively like sort of pin down, we're changing this one thing for the specific group of people and not other things? Yeah, I would call this a kind of like fetishization of measurement. Um, I want to bracket that for now and come back to it later. Uh, the specific thing about RCTs is that because the experimenter assigns different treatments to groups, that means, you know, if you're running the experiment, you think that the thing you're giving group A is going to benefit them. But that means you're denying group B of the thing that you thought was beneficial enough to run this experiment and try to research it, right? I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but there's this concept called, concept called equipoise. I think you pronounce it that way. In the ethics literature about this, right? Like research ethics, you, you can't like run an experiment if, you, if you're denying a group of something you think would benefit them, right? That's like the, the basic like ethics concept of it, right? So this gets into the history of RCTs. Like there was this previous wave where people were trying to make RCTs, you know, popular, paradigmatic, in the same way. And that failed because they were trying to implement them through political institutions. And it turns out it's very politically unpopular when you're giving one group of people something that's good and not giving it to the other group of people so that you can show that it's quote unquote effective, right? So part of the reason why we have RCTs now is because NGOs stepped in instead of political institutions, because NGOs are not accountable to people who are like in the communities receiving the intervention, right? So it's like, I think is this, if you're talking about the politics of EA, I think this is a really important historical point when you're thinking about how should we evaluate, like whether an intervention is good. Like, actually, this is a, this, this whole setup is meant to avoid political dissent. One thing that was really interesting to me about your piece is how I felt like you kind of proposed this alternate history of EA that kind of flipped a lot of the sort of components on its head to me, or maybe like the sort of timeline of the development of EA thought. Like you, if, if I'm remembering right, I think you wrote that, you know, there was already this emphasis on using RCTs and social scientists or, and this, uh, this you use the term uh, philanthro capital, I think, you know, describing this uh, philanthropic initiatives that are backed by large charitable organizations or extremely wealthy individual actors. And that already existed. And then the, the sort of moral philosophy, the Peter Singer stuff was kind of a good way to get people to give their money to these kinds of interventions. Or, you know, I feel like I usually would think of EA, the story I'd often heard about from individual people who 
are sympathetic to EA or just from my own understanding of it was, you know, I listened to Peter Singer talk about the necessity of, uh, you know, helping people, even the people I don't directly know and giving to UNICEF. And so I had to think of, well, what's the most effective way to do that? And I stumbled upon RCTs. Whereas um, if I'm not misunderstanding you, are you saying that maybe the, the RCTs and people who wanted to use RCTs in these particular kind of charitable ventures kind of existed and this sort of philosophical approach, this moral imperative is a good way to sort of convince individual actors to give their money to these causes. Did the method wag the tail of the morality or did the morality wag the tail of the method? Yeah, I, I honestly, a weak point of my article is I don't actually know the chronology there. I'm, I'm making the assumption in the way that you're just laying it out, right? Like, I think that's right. What I would say about the RCT stuff and like bring back the point of like philanthropic capitalists, right? That like there's this idea of like really rich people, like people who run big businesses, like have a way of evaluating their own businesses, right? Like, are we using our resources effectively, right? And the concept of philanthropic capitalists basically refers to like imposing these like financial firm logics on charitable donations, NGOs, that sort of thing, right? So there's this pre-existing thing, or maybe not pre-existing, but separate thing, where you have philanthropic capitalists who are looking to make their giving more efficient, right? And efficiency is the key concept of all of this sort of ideology, right? And at the same time, you have these development economists who recently won the Nobel Prize in Econ for RCTs, right? And their work in development econ, and there's basically a group of young economists who want to gain prestige and work in their own way, right? So that's the way that that, that paper by the colleagues uh, Ayal and D'Souza Ayal, uh, Ayal in our department, like that historical paper on the rise of RCTs charts their alliance, right? My impression is that the analytic philosophers like Peter Singer come afterward as a sort of marketing campaign in the way that you're describing. And I think it's significant that like ethics and philosophy is also a very individualized framework, right? How much can I earn? How much can I give, right? Yeah. Okay, so I have one clarifying question and then two weird things to throw at you. So clarifying question is you said, you know, a lot of these young economists at the time were working in the shadow of what is called the credibility revolution. And they saw this as a quote, and I think this isn't your quote, this is a quote of another article you're quoting, which is RCTs are a much narrower golden ticket, a hall pass that shields a young scholar from a situation where the consensus underlying disciplinary objectivity has collapsed. Could you just elaborate on what that means, clar clarify what that means? What was the credibility revolution and and why was RCT this this hall pass? And what does it mean to have disciplinary objectivity collapse? I assume they're all in a shared constellation around each other. So what does that all mean? No, it's a huge question. And I, if any you know sociologists of science listen to this, they're going to be like, oh, man, John doesn't know that much about this. <laughs> Get us started, though. And everyone who's listening, just Google and learn more, and we'll go deep down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the spark notes, though. I mean, the credibility revolution, like, <laughs> you could sum this up as saying, you know, if you see, like, a quantitative paper making a causal claim that's more than 15 or 20 years old. Social scientists today basically don't believe it. The, like the standards for credibility in terms of like, what is a clean causal inference have, have just moved, like the goalposts are just moving dramatically, like more quickly. And like the, the credibility revolution, there have already been more after that. Like it's just a very fast moving research space. 
And also social science is a young field compared to say physics or biology. And there is not like a, like a coherent set of norms about, you know, how we develop theory or how we make do empirical work, right? It's a, it's like a contentious, growing, unsettled space, right? Even a hundred years in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A professor <laughs> in my department like talked about like his friend who is an engineer who came to one of his methods talks and was like, man, we've already got this stuff settled. It's crazy you're still working on it, right? Yeah, it's <laughs> like the, the Masons in 1600s were working right. on like professional <laughs> professional standards or something. And Yeah, so what's appealing about RCTs is that there's not like a bunch of like statistical complication. Like RCTs literally just compare the average difference between the two groups. Like you're literally, it's adding and subtracting is like yes. the, the observed effect in RCTs, which makes it very straightforward. And, you know, RCTs aren't gonna fall apart as quickly. Okay, so I have a very micro weird question, very macro weird question. So the micro weird question is on the psychology of this. So what I was taken by in that paragraph on the credibility revolution was that, you know, these scholars wanted to be psychologically safe. You know, they didn't want the messiness of uncertainty. You know, they didn't want to publish a paper that said, I'm kind of seeing some hints in this direction. They wanted to publish papers saying, look at this, this is real. And I think there's an equivalent to that of kind of lay people who are interested in EA. And again, this is just, you know, my uncertainty about this, my vulgar understanding of this, where there's this desire where, you know, supporting Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Donald Trump, for that matter, um, you know, is messy. There are thousands of factors, you know, like literally like you throwing that concert for Bernie Sanders has thousands of uncertainties about it. Is the concert the best way to help Bernie Sanders? Is Bernie Sanders the best avatar of the left? Is the left the best thing for America right now? Is his specific kind of labor leftiness better than an antitrust leftiness or whatever? You know, all these uncertainties that you have to sit with when you make an intervention in the concrete of politics let alone, that's just like political action, but let alone theory when you devote your life to the welfare state or you devote your life to the cause of organizing labor unions or you devote your life to fomenting third world revolution or whatever whatever you wanna do, that's not a randomized control trial. It is 10,000 variables and it, you just have to see what happens. And that is psychologically less safe to someone than you know, I've read the 50 papers that say, you know, against malaria is definitely good. And we have the randomized control trials. And I just wondered, do you notice that among EA folks? Is there is there a sociology angle to kind of this psychological safety of kind of modular instrumental action in a very small, narrow way, as opposed to kind of the messy theory-based collective action of politics? <laughs> Yeah, that's um, a big question. So no, it's a great question. We're gonna hold you to answer this. <laughs> can, I, can I answer you with an anecdote? Yes. So I browse the academic subreddits a lot, and there was a really thoughtful post someone did there a few weeks ago where they were like, you know, like I'm doing this like physics work, and I really don't know if I want to be a like a PI of a lab or a professor. Like I want to do something with social impact, and someone posts in the comments like this website, 80,000hours.org, which is an EA website. I start looking at it and it's, it's like a, like this is like the the psychological institution that is like, you, you know, you found the, the elite pipeline individual who is looking to try and make change. 
and then you're serving them like the simplified ideological scientific veneer package with action and saying oh here are a bunch of things that you can do and like the success stories on this website are like you know i'm i'm a consultant who works with tech companies to tell them about the dangers of ai right so suddenly like someone who is concerned or is thinking about dedicating their life to something with social impact, whether it's political or not, this person seemed like they just wanted to volunteer for stuff, right? Not, it wasn't like a big picture global poverty thing, but you get this like suddenly like there's this whole apparatus meant to suck up these people who are, you know, like pretty smart and thoughtful. And now they're like, like, oh, it would be social justice if you were a tech consultant, right? Yeah, there's it feels very millennial in a certain way, like where, you know, I, I am also a, a musician now, very much a hobbyist, but I've, you know, run a recording studio and been a, a full-time musician in the past. And, you know, it feels like kind of a similar side to the coin of like how, you know, if you have a, a creative interest or a passion, you know, it must be your life determining yeah. passion that you must do as a full-time money-making job and you must make this, you know, eight hours of your day every day. Whereas, you know, I feel that it's still that. very valid to be a, someone who politically organizes as a hobby or, you know, not as their full-time job working for a nonprofit or, yeah. you know, working in tech AI consulting, you can still, or you can still play in a garage band on the weekends and be a fulfilled musician or, and you can, you know, I feel like this is just an aside, but that kind of uh, treating a full-time career as like you know the most valid funnel for your moral impulses to affect the world is feels yeah. very uh real to me and and this this eighty thousand hours website right is this this is uh anecdotally right the um the website or the movement that was founded by william mccaskill right who sat down with sam bankman freed and convinced him that he should you know go into trading on in Manhattan to make a lot of money for effective altruism, right? When he was a, a teenage EA or something. It might be. I, that's, that's the funny thing. I haven't read McCaskill. I've read Singer and Unger, you know? Yeah. So I, that's why I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm somewhat in, incomplete in my understanding. Could I ask you my, my second weird macro intervention? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I don't have the exact words for this yet, but I just have a fuzzy sense that is entering somewhere. So Nicholas Nassim Taleb, he kind of turned me on to, uh, he kind of, whatever, Taleb pilled me to <laughs> relieve myself from like modularized logical positivism that converges on like single answers. So, you know, he said, you know, the, the progress, and in some ways this is also what like Edmund Burke says. So this is weird of me as a lefty to cite, <laughs> but, um, um, but it's basically like this critique of like, there's this progressive technocratic mindset, scientistic mindset of like, we are converging on the truth through the like accumulation of knowledge and any like lack of truth that we have is um, just our inability to have the best tools and the best analysis to get us to the perfect thing that will tell you everything you need to know. And what Taleb says is this is actually a really brittle way of analyzing the world. Um, and I'll throw in a third thinker, which is like, because we make, we, Eddie, he's kind of made his career out of 
coming up with all the different ways this is very brittle well you don't anticipate black swans like things that are totally different that weren't in your data for the last hundred years that appear out of nowhere um and then another one's like kunian revolutions so like you might be all working in one paradigm and then the paradigm shifts underneath your feet and so it's actually very brittle to build your knowledge alone in a room kind of gathering data and analysis the alternative that burke and also like hayek all these enemies you know um say <laughs> Like that's his critique of centralized knowledge because he says like centralized knowledge is missing a lot of data because it's all the the pointy at intellectuals in the central place. What is the alternative for Book and Taleb and Hayek? It's the organic knowledge that built, but also lefty anarchists and other people. So it kind of crosses boundaries. The knowledge that organically builds up through experience of the randomness of democratic experimentalism and like communities on their own figuring stuff out and so you get really weird results when you just randomly let the world work you know what what they all say is they say let the world run in all of its weirdness without your intellectual like um design and then see what works and double down on it and see what doesn't work and stop doing it you know my lefty way would say see what doesn't work and stop doing it the the righties would say just affirm the status quo all the time but um and you know and that's just a totally different way to get knowledge you know if you were trying to solve third world poverty or you're trying to solve you know public safety which you work on all the time you wouldn't say let's sit alone in a room and think it up you'd say oh it turns out in this community they do a really good job at this and i never would have been able to design that community and so i just wonder if there's something about ea and randomized control trials that's just like hubristic progressive technocracy at the expense of like community knowledge, decentralized knowledge, the, all the weirdness that results in good things happening um, that we never could have thought up at Harvard or McKinsey or whatever. Yeah, again, you're giving me a lot to respond to. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. In the middle of every episode, we try to just throw some weird stuff at you. Yeah, yeah there are a few things that come to mind, which, uh... The first is that prison abolitionists talk about social change as a million experiments, right? And I'm obviously very sympathetic to like decentralized like structures, right? Like I, I don't. I, it wouldn't be right to call myself like a left libertarian, I don't think. But a lot of the political philosophy I'm sympathetic to is like not very centralized, right? Something else that comes to mind in the sort of science context. Um, this is there's a sort of a concept from Habermas where he distinguishes between, you know, natural science and social science where the, you know, natural science, you, you could think of like crop rotation as a really good example or like agricultural technology. Like this is about control, right? Natural science, like we develop technology to control the physical world to serve humanity, right? So I think there's an impulse to do a, a form of social engineering with social science, right? Where we are trying to control the world and make it function in a way according to our norms and values, right? But yeah. there's like an alternate goal of science, which it's it's tied with Habermas's whole like communicative rationality thing, which has other issues. But I think that there's a, a good kernel there, which is basically like social science is about explaining to each other how the world works and less about like planning, right? But social science is used for planning, right? That's the whole reason why like economists are integrated in government. Like the economists do the planning, right? We've got the, the Council of Economic Advisors in federal government, right? Is it an so engine or a camera? 
I think that's that's more yes. of a book about economics, right? An engine, not a camera, but it feels that's interesting. Oh, yes, is the uh, yeah is the is the the observational science driving the results in self-fulfilling prophecies or not. That's yeah. actually, it's very narrowly related to RCTs too, because one of the findings of the RCT methods literature is actually running an RCT a bunch of times can change the result that's observed because you've changed what's happening in the world, right? Like the, yes. the social world is not like a static thing. It like reacts to the social science that's conducted. Mm. There's, there's one thing, one other thing, oh, maybe a weird tangent that I wanted to talk about, you know, in, in response to Pete's question and your response is um, you know, one of my favorite books is this book called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney, who's mostly a science fiction writer, but he wrote this great book um, that's in part a history of uh, Times Square, New York, and the gentrification thereof in the 90s. And um, in it, he proposes this kind of you know, two modes of sociality um, of, you know, interacting with other people. Um, and he says he calls them contact um, and networking. And networking is where you are meeting with people because of an interest that you already have in common, like your EAs and you're posting on lesswrong.com, or you're living in an EA house together in San Francisco, or you're, you know, at the 80,000 hours meetup, you know, trying to figure out how best to pick a career or something like that. Or, you know, his examples are like your science fiction authors going to a book conference together to try to get publishing deals or, you know, maybe, maybe you're all college students, you know, at the reunion. But um, he says that, that those kind of opportunities tend to reinforce ideas that you already have or, you know, they, they, they don't open up in quite the same way as what this other mode that he calls contact, which is sort of like, for examples, like, you know, meeting someone in the line at the grocery store and they overhear you talking about how you are trying to get a book published and they say, oh, well, I know someone who's a publisher or, you know, yeah, you meet someone at the dog park and it turns out they have an opportunity for you or they become a friend or you just have a good conversation. And, you know, these or, you know, you're at, say, a benefit concert and you bump into someone you know, who's watching the band and you strike up a conversation and he says that these kinds of modes of contact that aren't based on like your prior affiliations are really important because they can open you up to different perspectives and different people that you weren't even sure you were looking for before. And particularly he says they happen a lot across class lines, especially when you're say in a big city like New York. And, you know, he says, not only does that have a democratizing kind of function for how you think of other people around you, you might be from other classes or other backgrounds, but it can also, you know, be anecdotally where, you know, a lot of your, your most memorable friendships or your biggest connections, your best opportunities in life can come from. And, you know, that's something that sometimes I kind of, you know, thinking too much in that sort of weird, typified uh, theory, I wonder where, you know, it feels like effective altruism as a movement spends a lot of time talking to other people who are already very sort of aligned with the goals. And I wonder whether there's something I think intrinsic that might be gained from having sort of um, meetups or, you know, organizing efforts that are more collective and that sort of cast a bigger net where you, maybe you don't, 
you're not so sure that the other people you're talking with are also you know fans of Peter Singer or earning to give in the, quite the same way. And it seems to me that's been a crucial kind of component of sort of lefty organizing and like, you know, you organizing around, say, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah. Is First, there anything I mean, there? Yeah, there? I, I kind of want to read that book now. It seems it seems cool. <laughs> oh, it's um, a fantastic book. I, I would recommend it to everybody. I uh, yeah. So the, the, the link to Bernie Sanders is right. So what I was thinking about as you're explaining this is I did not like people. It was just people I knew were organizing in the campaign, especially in the music scene. So it was, it falls a little bit into the contact bucket where it was just like, people were like, oh, have you heard about this campaign? I was not someone who like did politics before this, you know? Mm. So that, that's, that's one thought I have. Another thought, I, I guess like I'm a believer in like political education and obviously I emphasize mass politics and struggle. I think there's like, you can swing too far in the direction of like, you know, just get everyone in a room and then talk. And then that's what the political theory is. Right. But I, and the, the other thing that comes to mind is that like in terms of the contact theory and class lines, actually like space is very segregated now, like according yeah. to race class. So that's like, I would problematize that a little bit. Right. Like you, if, if I walk around my neighborhood, I'm going to find mostly rich people. <laughs> That's, yeah, <laughs> those, are, those are some thoughts I have. Yeah, that's one thing that he, he kind of laments in the book about Times Square, where, you know, it was previously a neighborhood where you'd see a lot of, you know, people from very you know, lower class backgrounds, you know, but mingling with other people who are more well off, you know, it's a major transportation hub and, you know, yeah, people yeah. Would, would meet there, et cetera. But um, yeah, I mean, very, very good book. I could probably do a whole podcast about that sometime. But um one thing I did want to ask, and I, I got to look at my notes here. I mean, I feel like one thing we've kind of hinted at in previous conversations with people on on all different sides of the EA debate is that, you know, it seems like there's kind of this lens of possibility that effective altruists sort of like look through for a lot of things. And, and what I tend to notice is that a lot of effective altruism language, particularly in the last couple of years, as we've heard more about like, you know, these sort of long-termist ideas or, you know, stuff that maybe sounds a little more science fictional, think talking about AI, talking about, you know, even some of the climate change solutions. It seems like they they will be very, very willing to look at sort of big or bold or very, you know, different from the status quo kinds of ends um, or technologies, but then it seems like a lot of effective altruism is very pragmatic um, by contrast about like the sort of means where like they'll say, you know, you know, if, if you say, well, is individual giving the right solution to global poverty when, you know, perhaps some of the the systems that make you rich enough to donate your money are also propping up the inequality across the world, you know, and then to which I've seen some, you know, effective altruist arguments that say, well, well, this is just the most effective way to do good right now. And, you know, this is the, this is the way it is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas like, they're also talking about like colonizing space and like representing people in computer simulations. I know that's not all of, you know, the discourse around effective altruism, 
but sometimes it strikes me that they can be very pragmatic at the same time as they're they're willing to think very big about other things but then i love that observation that's yeah my, part of the reason how i got into sociology is i was working for a criminologist um who developed like the way that police departments respond to gang violence and the way that this is sold to U.S. cities, many, many U.S. cities do this. Like, I think Baltimore is currently doing this. Philly has gone back and forth on it, et cetera. Um, but the, the selling point is, like, this isn't a big expenditure. Like, I think you can enter into contract for, like, 300, 400 grand for, like, a few years, right? Like, it's not a big expenditure. You're not fundamentally changing anything apart from the configuration of, you know, police capacity, prosecutor capacity, and social service capacity, Right. So this is like, this is the kind of like pragmatism you're talking about, where it's like, I have argued at length elsewhere that, you know, gun violence could be fixed by reparations, right? That's, you know, these are dramatically different scales of capacity, cost, et cetera, right? But I think what you're talking about is the contradiction in EA between like these really narrow and really big picture things is super interesting. Out of almost like charitability to EA, I mostly focus on poverty and not AI. Because I think that the AI stuff is just like, I don't even know how to engage that, right? Like, at least I can I can affirm, like, against malaria, it does good work. I'm happy to have donated to them, right? My issue comes in where you're telling someone that, you know, live your life around charitable donations. Don't talk about any forms of action to ameliorate global poverty except charitable donation, right? Don't think about the structures you might have to participate in to earn money to give, Right. That's where my problems come in. I thought maybe in these last five or so minutes, we'd give you space to talk about your main uh, research as it relates to kind of some of these topics. You know, I'd love to, you know, when I think about, you mentioned a little bit about Arnold Ventures, uh, which funds a lot of criminal legal reform. I'd be interested in how this kind of randomized control trial desire to be effective affects kind of even the funders that are broader than EA that actually like fund political work. But, you know, as someone who's tried to raise money for different nonprofits, I've had all these, con you know, conversations with funders and some of them, you know, have the Talebian spirit of like, I kind of like what y'all are doing. It's worth a shot. Um, and I, I, I found them to be very effective um, because sometimes the shots really work out. And then there are these others that are very focused on like, I need to know in one year, you know, the data that proved that you used my money in the most effective way. And it's like, you know, I wonder retrospectively, would they have given the Montgomery bus boycott money? <laughs> or like, would they have given the Flint sit down strike money? Would they have given- I mean, those are social movements, right? Yeah, so they would have- Social movements are not funded. Right. Maybe, yeah, and that's something you got into. And like William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator, would they have said, you know, that doesn't seem that effective. You know, not many people are going to read that. You know, but um, yeah, so tell me about when you say social movements aren't funded, you mentioned in your article, you know, there was a famous essay like The social, the Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Could you just talk yeah. about that and how that relates to one of the great causes of our time, prison abolition? I mean, this is like part of why I liked what Dan was saying about, you know, like use your career as a, a vehicle, right? Like the idea of a career being like the change vehicle is so central to this. I'm totally implicated in this as an academic, right? I'm an academic who researches like social justice topics. So like it's incumbent upon people like me to do unfunded work, right? Like volunteer work on top of that work. The, the point about Arnold, again, I want to emphasize, I'm not distinct from this, right? Arnold has paid my salary, right? 
So like I'm I'm implicated in the structure I'm about to describe. Yeah. So like they they've totally restructured themselves from like a charitable foundation to an LLC so that they like because it's their whole ethos that you know we're going to make giving efficient. We're going to think about charitable donation as social investment, right? Where you're expecting a certain ROI in terms of policy impact. So yeah, I mean, none of this stuff is compatible with, you, you know, you could say radical movements or social movements that are less radical, right? It doesn't matter because like, it's not it's not in the same structure that they're looking at. Um, I guess this gets back to what I'd said we should bracket until later. Like, if you think about like the Green New Deal, right? Like you can't measure something that changes so many things at the same time. Like in the causal inference framework, you're supposed to narrow it down to one isolated thing that changes and see what the effect is over time on the outcome of interest. Like at Green New Deal reparations, these kinds of like radical demands for social change would be like incomprehensible to social scientists. And this gets back to my point about engineering, right? Like if, if the point of social science is to give you like a measurement framework to see which narrow policy changes are worth doing, like you're you're already a world away from what these sort of broader popular demands are for like change, right? And it just like, it's a tunnel vision effect where you're just looking like closer and closer and closer and thinking about like the point estimate statistically and like, oh, like how much does this change wages or whatever, right? And it just, it just, it's like a, like you were talking about like a technocratic centralized framework like that. I feel like the Arnold giving model kind of just emphasizes that. Right. But at the same time, it's like, you, you know who the other funders are in the criminal justice reform space. It's the Cokes and Soros, right? Like it's yeah. not a huge space. Arnold led investment, right? So it's like, yeah. And, and, and we should, we should give due to like, we don't want a lot of nonprofits that are taking $500,000 to throw some like party for, you know, like we know that there's a lot of money that's burned on fire for n no attempt at all to like be effective yeah. at all. Well, the issue is so that, it's, that, it's like, hard as always. It's all, all, um, yeah. It's, it's the same thing there. where I was saying, like, I don't care if rich people donate to Against Malaria. I don't care if John and Laura Arnold choose to use their money in this way, you know? But the the problem is when they go in into the sort of public policy advocacy context and they say, like, this is the way that policy should work. That's very different. And they do this all the time. John Arnold just recently published a Wall Street Journal article on bail reform, which like, I think that's a, like New Jersey bail reform is a complicated topic that could be its own episode of this spot, right? Like that's like, I don't want to get into the can of worms, but th their understanding of what constitutes like evidence for policy effectiveness is becoming in the same way that the economist cost effectiveness understanding permeates policy. It's just becoming this primal way the Americans, like on the center, on center left, even the left itself, are understanding whether things are worth doing. And that to me is the part that I worry about. I don't care if rich people choose to use their money or their time in whatever way. It's just like, if you think about it as a politicizing phenomenon, like choosing to take this social investment ethos in response to political problems is like, you know, that's good, but that's not enough. And it shouldn't supplant, you know, popular movements. It's like the difference between science, which is good, and scientism, which is like ideological science or something, trust the science or whatever. And it's the same thing here. It's like we should have some nonprofits that are really into RCTs or something. But the idea of supremacy of that 
is uh, is kind of totalizing and homogenizing. You know, this it reminds thing, me. Like, RCT is a tool. It's not the yes. method. It's a tool. Amen. You know, it needs to be the tool, not we a tool of it. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite quotes about the New Deal is from my favorite philosopher, Roberto Unger. Um, he said, uh, the interesting thing about the New Deal, the original New Deal, and it made me think about this, is every single individual project of it failed. But as a whole, it was successful. By which he meant, you know, and, and I think it was he's a little overstating it, like Social Security didn't fail, the minimum wage didn't fail, the 40-hour work week didn't fail. But, you know, there are hundreds of programs, many of which ran their course, many of which didn't really, you know, achieve all the dreams that they wanted. But you wake up in 1945 and the world, you wake up in 1945 and the world is very different than in 1930. And all of the psychological and political effects of doing all those projects, all of the other ideas that were thought up through all those projects, all of those projects in the dialectical nature of even though they didn't work, it made someone think something else up that, you know, then worked in the 60s or something, or um, all the inspiration it draws to people now to like keep doing the New Deal, all of that is unmeasurable. So even if, if, if you had like, um, there would probably be a Vox article in 19, you know, 41 saying the New Deal failed, <laughs> you know, like look at, look at the, and it would be very talked about, but um, you can never know. Um, and so I think we need to think prospectively instead of just retrospectively about those lessons. Yeah. And this is an argument I made about prison abolition recently too, is abolitionists understand social change on a longer arc. And that like the, the idea that you would learn something about the way policing works through an abolitionist campaign is not something that the RCT evaluation framework is going to protect, right? Totally, the totally. The social understanding changes, like that's not going to be something social scientists can measure in the causal inference framework, right? Well, thank you so much for coming on down the rabbit hole. We've learned so much. We've gone down so many sub rabbit holes. Where can people find out more um, if they want to uh, follow John uh, Thought here? I have a, I got my Twitter. I got a Substack personal website. Google it pretty much. We'll tell people and we'll drop it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah drop the link. <laughs> yeah, check out the show notes in our Patreon or on wherever you get in the podcast and you'll see John's socials, Substack link, et cetera. Um, we strongly recommend your article um, on your Substack about effective altruism. Hold on, let me just call up the title there. So I effective altruism is a political nightmare. Very strong, strongly worded statement. <laughs> I also appreciate in your writing style. It sounds it's both kind of very strongly worded and blunt, while also being having humility, which very rare to pull off. Um, it's like, I don't know everything, but also in what I do know, I'm going to say it at the level of strength that it needs to be said. <laughs> so we need more of that spirit. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, John. Uh, we'll see you next time, Rabbits. Thanks, guys. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. Theme music is by Danny Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. Maybe we had an off day. <laughs>